Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. We have got a cast-iron assurance and a guarantee from the British government. The particular problems around the Irish border are being used politically to try to frustrate Brexit. Northern Ireland must leave uh, the European Union on the same terms as the rest of the United Kingdom. Northern Ireland would form part of our customs territory. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. And I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's Correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. The general election is in full swing in the UK and as things get nasty, election packs are on, then off again and all sides are accused of lies, damned lies and spending pledges. With the latest polls revealing that the UK electorate is now increasingly defined defining itself in terms of leave or remain rather than party allegiance. I'll be discussing what kind of week Nigel Farage and the Brexit party has had. We'll take stock of how the EU is digesting it all and we'll hear from the man who lead the post-Brexit trade negotiations, Ireland's EU Commissioner Phil Hogan, on how quickly those talks might get underway and how quickly they might be concluded. And I'll be taking a look at what promises to be the most politically toxic part of those future relationship discussions, fish and how or if Britain will be taking back control of its waters. But first, Sean, in your neck of the woods, as Tony said at the outset there, the UK election in full swing, various contested claims and promises. The latest controversy today, Friday, as we record this, is... Yes, broadband. The uh, Labour Party has thrown a big uh, rock into the pond here and suggested uh, nationalising a big chunk of uh, British Telecom, the old British Telecom, uh, which, of course, the government here used to own until they privatised it in one of those great big Thatcherite privatisations. This is to buy back the broadband uh, delivery part of uh, BT uh, because guess what, even in Britain people do nothing but moan about how awful the broadband is, how slow it is, how hard it is to get onto uh, any kind of decent speed uh, and how bad the service from the companies is. So Labour has copped onto something popular here and married it with good old-fashioned Marxist thinking about getting the control of the commanding heights of the economy. And in the 21st century, of course, the commanding heights are, are not coal and steel or even ye olde railway, but broadband, because the idea is to put it into every home in the country uh, for free. Uh, and free, of course, means somebody else pays for it, uh, taxpayers pay for it. So people will still be paying for it. They'll just be paying for it in a different way. But free always sounds good in an election. The idea of having... Uh, high-speed fibre broadband to every home in the country sounds like a good idea. Uh, And then perhaps you can sell the notion that you only have to deal with one company when you want to ring up and complain about uh, your broadband not working uh, might appeal to people as well, rather than going on websites, if they can go on them at all, to find out what the best deal is. Uh, It also, of course, is a way of locking in a particular view on the tax structure in the country because, uh, again, the borrowings that will be uh, required, Labour are saying £20 billion to buy uh, and provide the capital for the infrastructure, uh, and plus the ongoing charges, that means tax money has to be allocated to that. That's in addition to the taxes that are going uh, elsewhere in the economy. But they're also saying that the uh, maintenance cost of the network would be borne by an additional 
tax on the internet giants, the Amazons and Googles uh, of this world, uh, that they will be paying about a quarter of a billion in additional taxes as well. So you can see from a simple idea of let's have free broadband to every house in the country, it reaches back into the real core of the, uh, the economy and the heart of the tax structure. So it's a big offer from Labour. It's uh, thrown a rock in the pond in the election here. It has people running around the place trying to figure out what's going on. I'm not sure the Tories saw this one coming. Uh, and it's uh, set the cat among the pigeons. But of course, if people are debating Labour's broadband plan, they're not debating Brexit. And that suits the Labour Party just fine, just like the argument over spending commitments does, because Labour's own posture as an anti-austerity party with massive capital investment and other investment in the economy has them talking about those things and arguing about the figures, their affordability and sustainability and not talking about their Brexit stance which they were receiving a bit of a hammering on before this. Yeah, and uh, even though the, the Labour is talking about a lot of additional spending uh, which implies uh, a lot of changes to the tax structure in Britain and uh, locking in a particular view on the way the economy is run uh, you are getting pushback from the Conservatives, but again, their main focus has been on trying to establish themselves as a Brexit party, also as a party that is prepared to uh, open the piggy banks and spend a lot of money. Uh, but they're also being told by their key election strategist that they really have to retain their credibility as a party of fiscal restraint uh, and lower taxes. So on the one hand, they're talking about borrowing more, spending more, but taxing less, uh, and of course that strains the, the bounds of credibility. But I, neither of the parties have really started to engage with one another uh, at the moment in terms of the nitty-gritty of the figures, partly, of course, because they haven't published their manifestos yet, uh, and the website that was set up, the costofcorbyn.com, uh, by the Conservatives to try and show massive amounts of spending uh, by Labour is based on figures that aren't uh, necessarily the official Labour Party figures because they haven't been published yet. Now, of course, we wouldn't have a modern election these days without Russia getting the mention, and Russia can't get the mention, really, I suppose, without Hillary Clinton, and that's what was going on during the week in the UK. Yeah, a big intervention from Hillary Clinton, who was you know, uh, on tour selling a book uh, uh, the way you do, but she did an interview with the BBC and uh, said she found it uh, extraordinary that a report uh, by the Intelligence and Security Committee in the House of Commons uh, was being held back uh, effectively by Downing Street. Uh, they didn't want to publish it. This was into uh, allegations of uh, Russian interference in the electoral process in the UK uh, and also the kind of links, uh, as far as we understand it, between Russian oligarchs uh, and British politicians, which may be where it starts to get, uh, and other establishment figures. And that's where it might start to get a bit uh, controversial. But this report was uh, compiled by this Intelligence and Security Committee. It's a small committee. Uh, of the House of Commons and Lords. Uh, it's chaired by Dominic Grieve, QC, former Attorney General, and of course, uh, Tory rebel, who got booted out of the Conservative Party uh, by Boris Johnson, not let back like uh, a number of the others were, uh, and is contesting uh, his constituency as an independent Conservative. So yes, you would say he has a bit of a grievance uh, against Boris Johnson, uh, but on the other hand, uh, this does look like one of those issues uh, that could smolder away and uh, increase in, in intensity as the campaign goes along right. if uh, people like Mr. Grieve and Hillary Clinton can keep uh, it going. There's the official excuse for not publishing is uh, it's not being properly cleared. 
by the security services. Uh, that's not the understanding most journalists have. Uh, the, the process normally is that all this stuff gets cleared before it gets sent to number 10 for final sign-off, and that takes about 10 days. It went in in the middle of October, hasn't been published, and uh, people are saying it's not credible uh, that there's a security reason not to publish this. Hard to know, really, if the Kremlin was minded to cause mischief in the UK election, why it would bother to put its hand in its pocket at this stage. It's a win-win either way. If a pro-Brexit party wins, it pulls another thread out of the European Union. If Jeremy Corbyn wins, he's given Russia the benefit of the doubt on most controversies that have arisen over the last while. They could save a lot of money on this one, even if they were minded to cause any mischief. It's not necessarily this election. It's, it's the possibility of interference in previous elections and particularly in the, the Brexit referendum itself. I mean, a lot of money did come in, uh, not all of it properly accounted for uh, in the country. And then there have been various reports of links between uh, Russian oligarchs and uh, senior political figures here, including Boris Johnson himself. And people want to, some of the people want to see those links fully investigated and properly aired, uh, see if there are Uh, direct linkages to the Kremlin or Kremlin-associated oligarchs in the way that Hillary Clinton pointed out that there was um, uh, found to be interference in the US uh, election in uh, 2016 when she lost by a very narrow margin. Uh, You know, it's questionable to what extent uh, lots of internet advertising, trolling, money being thrown into advertising campaigns does change the course of an election, but if it's a really tight election like the US presidential election was tight and one could say the Brexit outcome was pretty tight as well but we don't know because we haven't seen this report yet uh, about what possible uh, interference there might have been uh, by Russia or whether it was the Kremlin or whether it was purely private sector or whether there was none at all but you know let's see the report we can't say much until we actually see it. Which brings us neatly to the the Brexit party. Uh, Sean they were They've been out and about this week. We had Nigel Farage announcing that the Brexit party wouldn't be contesting 317 Tory-held seats. It sounds like a boost for the Tory party, but it's not much of a boost in the seats the Tory party is targeting, which it doesn't currently hold. That's right. And this dates back to a split in the Brexit party over the whole direction uh, of their campaign and a falling out between uh, Nigel Farage and Aaron Banks. We've mentioned it a number of times uh, in this podcast. Uh, it really exploded last Sunday uh, into the uh, public domain when uh, Mr. Banks himself uh, wrote uh, an article for the Mail on Sunday newspaper uh, saying uh, that the Brexit party's move risked uh, collapsing Brexit and handing victory to the opponents of, of Brexit. Uh, Banks has been arguing that by standing so many candidates, uh, they will weaken the uh, pro-Brexit political impetus in Britain and allow particularly Liberal Democrat candidates to slip through and perhaps also Labour people to retain seats where uh, they might have been ousted if there had been an agreed candidate. And in the absence of a a formal pact between the Conservatives and the Brexit party, uh, then the best route was for the Brexit party to stand down uh, Nigel Farage completely disagreed with that. I was going ahead. There seems to have been uh, a compromise put together on Sunday night. There was a lot of backroom dealing between Aaron Banks uh, and the Conservative Party uh, and Nigel Farage and the Conservative Party using a, an intermediary, a city lawyer who'd been involved uh, in the Brexit campaigns in the past. Um, 
there was this video that uh, was produced hastily on Sunday in which uh, Boris Johnson said uh, we wouldn't have um, a, uh, an extension of the uh, Brexit uh, transition period beyond 2020 and we'll try and negotiate a Canada-style free trade agreement with the European Union. That was the very rickety ladder which uh, Nigel Farage used to get down from his position uh, on Monday morning when he announced that he wouldn't uh, be contesting seats against uh, Conservatives where they had won those seats uh, in 2017. So that was where the 317 candidates disappearing out of the list of the Brexit party had come from. Then the speculation became, well, to what extent will he uh, not stand candidates in those key uh, Labour marginals? There's about 20 of them that the Tories are, are targeting that they really need to win if they are to form a majority government and, in the uh, inimitable words of Boris Johnson, get Brexit done. Uh, but by insisting on standing in those seats, it probably makes the, well, it certainly makes the Conservatives' uh, task a lot harder because uh, in these Labour marginal leave voting constituencies, there is now a, a three-way fight. You can stick with your Labour uh, MPs or you can go to the Conservatives if you think that that's, if Brexit is the more important issue or there is the possibility of saying, well, I don't like Boris Johnson's version of Brexit. I want something a bit harder uh, and go for the uh, Brexit party. But that, of course, splits the, the, the vote because if the offering should have been a straightforward uh, vote for the Conservatives, you get Brexit, vote for Labour, you get some kind of remain. Uh, now we've got a three-way fight that splits the votes and probably makes it easier for Labour to keep those seats. Sean, another, before we go to Brussels, another announcement which has had muted enough reaction so far, but it's significant enough in and of itself. Yeah, this one didn't get much traction at all in the UK uh, media, surprisingly enough. It was Elon Musk uh, of uh, Tesla Automobiles and various other uh, ventures uh, announcing uh, that Europe's first, what they call, gigafactory uh, was going to be established in Berlin. This is a huge battery-making plant uh, and automobile-making plant for the Tesla electric uh, cars. They're going to set it up on the outskirts of Berlin. Uh, and he said, we couldn't consider going to Britain because of the risk of Brexit. Now, to my mind, that's a huge industrial story and a particularly massive industrial gain for uh, Germany and Germany's uh, car industry. I mean, think back a few years, we were all being told that the German car industry was going to uh, be the savior of Brexit because it would put so much pressure on the German government that they would more or less do whatever uh, the Brexiters wanted them to do. Uh, now it seems it's the other way around that Brexit has come to the aid of the German car industry because that, as we know from the Dieselgate scandal, uh, is an industry uh, that badly needs to get some kind of uh, leadership position in electric vehicles and move away from the internal combustion engine, that great German invention, uh, but that is the massive uh, driver, the most important industry in the biggest industrial country in the European Union, has now just got an enormous shot of adrenaline uh, in the form of this announcement. But the fact that uh, Elon Musk was saying we couldn't go to Britain because of Brexit, well that one came on the very day that Boris Johnson was making a speech, which did get wall-to-wall -wall television coverage, uh, in an electric vehicle factory in Coventry that makes uh, electric London 
taxis, which are really good. I've been in a couple myself, great vehicles, but obviously it's a limited enough market. So you're not going to get big industrial scale. And scale is what you need in battery production. And the landing of one of these battery gigafactories in Europe has been a missing piece for at least a decade now. It's been a big worry for uh, European policymakers. Now it looks like they're getting one and Brexit has played a role. Tony, Sean referred there to Boris Johnson's hastily put together video promising an absolute exit by the end of 2020, the trade deal done and dusted. There was some support for that point of view coming from uh, Phil Hogan, Ireland's commissioner, designate trade commissioner uh, at the moment, but um, confident that things could be got up and running uh, and proceedings to begin before St. Patrick's Day of next year in terms of substantive trade talks. Yeah, I mean, this was quite a surprising intervention by Phil Hogan. He was speaking at an event in Brussels in the Irish permanent representation uh, for the European Movement Ireland, uh, and they are launching their their annual Green Book, which is basically the in-house guide for all interns and and Irish people working in the EU institutions. Now, I, I was kind of given a sense from his team that he didn't really want to get into the politics of the general election or his role as trade commissioner um, because he's still trade commissioner designate the European Commission hasn't been formally inaugurated yet so uh, but nonetheless he, he, he gave a speech but he did talk to me afterwards and I asked him about the trade negotiations that will take place after Britain leaves which uh, if we uh, assume that Boris Johnson gets a majority, which is obviously not a, a entirely safe uh, assumption at this point, but just say he does get a majority, a working majority, then the withdrawal agreement will be ratified fairly quickly and Britain would leave at the end of January. Um, so the question is how quickly would the trade negotiations begin and how long would they take? Because Boris Johnson has been saying that, yes, of course, we can do a free trade agreement by the end of the year, uh, because if they don't, then they're going to have to extend the transition. And as Sean has been saying, uh, he's he's vowed, uh, maybe not die in a ditch style, but vowed that there will not be uh, an extension to the transition period. Uh, but I asked Phil Hogan about... Uh, how quickly these negotiations could could get underway and what kind of trade deal might be achievable uh, because if Boris Johnson wants a very bare bones free trade agreement what's called the Canada dry type uh, arrangement which is basically just uh, you know zero tariffs and zero quotas then could that be done quickly so here's what Phil Hogan had to tell me Commissioner you mentioned you're going to have a very packed agenda as trade commissioner but up there will be Brexit obviously um, we don't know how quickly that's going to materialise in terms of the trade negotiations. That's all dependent on the elections in the UK. But how do you see that process unfolding if there is a clear majority to get the withdrawal agreement passed and those negotiations started? Well, if there's a majority government, of course, it's, uh, it makes a big difference. Uh, if Mr Johnson is going to have a majority, we'll have a withdrawal agreement approved by mid-January. And if there was a, an alternative to Mr Johnson elected, uh, led by Labour and Lib Dems, we we'll probably have another referendum. So we wait with bated breath, I suppose, for what happens on the 12th of December. It's a very big decision for the people of the United Kingdom. There's a lot of engagement in it, and of course Brexit is probably the biggest issue uh, in the campaign. But we're ready for all eventualities. Uh, in the European Union, uh, Mr Barney and his team have done a lot of good work in preparing for phase two of the negotiations, as well as while the phase one negotiations perhaps were in abeyance for some period of time in the United Kingdom. So we're not starting from zero. Uh, and therefore, I believe that we can do, with a bit of goodwill on both sides, we can do uh, 
an agreement more quickly than we would do in any other negotiations uh, around the world would take three or four years. Why is that? Because there's been a lot of debate about how quickly you could do a trade agreement and uh, a lot of scepticism that it could be done by the end of year. By the, by the end of the year. And as I said, the United Kingdom are members of the European Union. They've been part of the trade framework uh, for the last 45 years. So we're not starting from scratch. So they have to decide which regulations they want to stay in or, or, or to remove themselves from uh, under, the, under the negotiations that would happen between the EU and the UK. But also in the document that was published on the future relationship, there are many policy issues already agreed, such as the level playing field in relation to environment and labour laws and standards, such as uh, you know, many of these issues could have been difficult were it not for the fact that they were included as part of the agreement under phase one. But Boris Johnson has talked about divergence and, and managed divergence. If the UK wants to stay close to EU uh, regulations and uh, have that closer access, then will the UK have to comply with EU regulations and will there be an oversight uh, role then for the European Court of Justice? Well, I think that there will be a look at all of the regulations and the UK have to let us know early on in the process you know, which regulations are problems for them. So then, you know, we will start to negotiate on them. But I would say a significant percentage, I would say the majority of the regulations that are there at the moment won't cause any difficulty for the consumers our workers, or, or people involved in, in environmental or agriculture, if they want to have the highest possible standards. And uh, I think that's the key issue, standards. And I think that the British public will demand and expect that their government will sign on to the European Union standards because we're the highest standards in the world. But of course the whole problem, of, uh, notwithstanding consumer desire to have high standards, the whole problem has been and will be, you know, how, how you enforce those standards, how you monitor them. Yeah. How you adjudicate them? Yeah, well, that will be a matter for the negotiation. But, uh, and we're not going to do the negotiation now, but I do feel that there is political goodwill now on both sides, having got this far in the phase one negotiations eventually, that they will not want in any way uh, either side to upset each other from having a frictionless, tariff-free, quarter-free agreement. But of course, it will have to be based on a level playing field. And do you think it's likely that we could get it done by the end of the year? or at least elements of the trade well, yeah, agreement? Yes, I would say there'll be a significant amount of progress made because we'll be ready to go in the springtime. The, the council have to give us a mandate. All of the various uh, you know, details around that can be achieved very quickly. We can get into negotiations uh, before Patrick's Day uh, if there is political goodwill on the part of the United Kingdom. And we're ready to go. And uh, let's see how far we can get. But there's also provision in the agreement to extend by six months the transitional period if that's necessary. And I don't think that that small period of time will be a problem for either side if we see that we're making substantial progress. And uh, finally, you're obviously, as Trade Commissioner, will have a key role in the negotiations, but uh, Michel Barnier is going to be the overall chief negotiator. How will your relationship with him unfold? Uh, what, what, is there a hierarchy or how do, you, how do you see that relationship working out? The structure will work on the basis that Mr Barnier will monitor all the, the, the uh, future relationship and I will be the chief negotiator for the free trade agreement. This is the, 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 the way that the structure will, will work. But he'll have to make sure you know, that there is a comprehensive picture emerging from seven or eight different commissioners that will be involved in various different ways in these negotiations with the United Kingdom. But from the point of view of the trade element, I will be by, you know, negotiating directly with the United Kingdom uh, with the assistance and support of Mr Bernier. So that was Phil Hogan uh, there talking to me during the week. Uh, now, it was surprising that he said uh, that 
because Britain has been a member of the EU for 45 years, they have been part of the EU's trade uh, framework. Uh, we're not starting from scratch in these negotiations. And he was essentially saying that the pressure on the UK would come from British consumers who would want to have the highest standards in the world when it came to food safety, when it came to uh, labour laws, environment, state aid and so on. Uh, so he was kind of possibly somewhat mischievously saying that, of course, the UK will want to be closely aligned with the EU regulatory orbit because consumers will demand that. Uh, but of course, that is political poison for Boris Johnson, because what he's talking about is not political uh, or close alignment at all with the EU. He wants to have a much more arm's length uh, relationship with the EU. He's talked about a Canada type trade relationship, zero tariffs, zero quotas. Now, it's important to say that the political declaration that both sides have signed up to when they agreed the withdrawal agreement, um, that that does spell out a free trade agreement that would be based on zero tariffs and uh, zero quotas. But of course, the EU uh, does not keep vast tariff lines in its armory. They keep fairly low tariffs on a lot of things. So the question isn't about tariffs, really. It's about non what they call non-tariff barriers. And that's really going to be the big battleground in these free trade agreement negotiations because it's, it's about regulations, uh, how closely the UK is prepared to align itself uh, to the EU's regulatory sphere. Uh, and of course, on past pronouncements, Boris Johnson doesn't want something that close. Uh, so that will then bring about uh, trade friction. So what Phil Hogan was saying was, well, actually, forget about Boris Johnson. British consumers will want to have these high standards and they won't want to be close uh, to the EU's uh, benchmark in terms of how you uh, regulate uh, food safety, how you regulate the safety of uh, children's toys, for example, uh, and all of those other things. Um, he, he interestingly said, too, that Britain would have to declare fairly early on in the process which parts of the EU's regulatory uh, armaments uh, or arrangements would the UK want to be part of and, and which they wouldn't want to be part of. Now, that struck me as somewhat strange because it sounds a bit like the kind of cherry picking that uh, we were all told was completely verboten by Michel Barnier right through the divorce negotiations. But uh, I suppose he was trying to perhaps make it clear to people that if the UK want a quick free trade agreement, it can be done. But it depends, obviously, on how much the UK would be prepared to sign up to the EU's regulatory orbit uh, uh, in order to get that done fairly quickly. Tony, there's a, a issue uh, that's cropped up here in the campaigning. Um, you've probably heard it um, yourself, which um, sparked some uh, interest on my part, uh, where they've been saying we can, of course, do a deal quickly and easily with the European Union, because unlike any other trade deal, we start from a point of total convergence with the European Union, and then we're going to uh, negotiate some kind of divergence from that. Now, if you want to do it quickly, then, as you've been saying, you've got to stick pretty much with the uh, 
uh, regulatory alignment, uh, uh, to use the jargon, of the European Union. It's not the tariff issue at all. The, the tariff is the least difficult. It is all of mm. the technical rules and regulations of food standards uh, and that sort of thing. But if the British keep saying uh, we start from a position of total convergence and that makes us different from any other trade deal, that's true. And the point that occurs to me is, well, if this is the first time that this is being done, then it's a precedent-setting negotiation. And I, I think it, I find it difficult to see why the European Union would rush into quickly doing a precedent-setting deal, uh, because, as you know, from other uh, trade deals in particular that get done, there's an awful lot of running the slide rule over them to make sure that they don't interfere with or set precedents for other countries who might then come back and look for other changes. So that all says to me this is not going to be a really super-fast process. This could be quite difficult and slow unless the British were simply to say, yeah, we accept whatever the uh, EU's offer is, because presumably they've been spending these last couple of years doing a lot of uh, preparatory work in the way that the Commission tends to do, that they have an idea of what the European Union wants from this uh, new trade relationship. Uh, and if they put an offer on the table, that was presumably one that's pretty acceptable in a fairly maximalist sense to the European Union. And then it's up to the British to see if they want to uh, erode that down. Uh, and that in turn would affect the market access uh, that they would get from it. Uh, but this mm. idea that because you start from convergence means it's simple doesn't ring true to my way of looking at it. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think that you've, you've touched on something very important there. And that's why I, I was uh, quite struck by what Phil Hogan was was saying. I mean, he said, we are not starting from a position of scratch. We're not starting from zero. Now, this issue has come up time and again in the negotiations and in the kind of general chatter around the what kind of future trade relationship there would be. And Brexit here say, well, of course, you know, we're going to be starting from uh, a position where we are, we have equivalence with uh, the EU rulebook, um, and of course Britain wants to have the highest standards in the world, etc., etc. But yes, you're equivalent on day one of Brexit, but you're not equivalent on day 50 of Brexit, uh, or day 100 or 365, because the EU is constantly updating and amending its its acquis, the, the, the rule book for the single market. Uh, so uh, if the UK wants to follow that, what they call dynamic uh, convergence with the EU, then that's one thing that would mean the UK would have to sign up to a lot of these uh, agreements uh, and uh, single market rule books. But if they do want to, to diverge, which is what the, the Brexiteers say they want to do, because that gives them more leeway to strike free trade agreements around the world, uh, then that's a different thing. So yes, they could do it quickly, but that would mean it would be a very bare bones uh, tariffs and quotas type free trade agreement. Uh, the, the, but there would, there would then be all of that, uh, all the non-tariff barriers such as the regulatory uh, issue. And I think you're right, the EU is not going to rush in and simply grant the UK a carte blanche uh, on the regulatory side simply because they have been members of the European Union for a long time. But it is true to say as well that this trade, agree trade agreement is not going to be like any other trade agreement in the world and won't be like anyone in the future because of the size of the UK economy, its proximity geographically to the EU and the fact that, you know, that there are other spheres of uh, shared interest uh, in the security front, in police cooperation, uh, in science and research, in education. All of those other elements will kind of cluster around a central free trade agreement that will make the relationship uh, completely different to any other 
relationship that the EU would strike with any other country around the world. But if you're talking about mid-March, Tony, as Phil Hogan's jumping in point to trade negotiations and meaningful trade negotiations, he may think that a deal could be concluded quickly, but his idea of quickly may not be the same as Boris Johnson's because, in effect, there's only four months to be close to an agreement on a final text before the UK has to make its mind up about extending the transition period beyond the end of 2020, which now Boris Johnson has recommitted to not extending. It doesn't seem that, well, it certainly seems a very ambitious programme of negotiation. Yeah, that's true. And I think um, the way people here in Brussels see things is that they are absolutely minded to not take everything Boris Johnson says at face value. Uh, shock horror for those listening. Uh, but, uh, you know, he is uh, has a very strong track record of flipping on uh, flip flopping on ideas and policies and uh, even uh, talking to uh, some British officials privately. Uh, last week who were saying, well, look, uh, you know, I know he said this, but uh, I think the Britain will look for a much more ambitious trade agreement than what perhaps people are thinking at the moment. And keep your eye on the Conservative manifesto for exactly what that trade agreement could be. So it may well be that um, when push comes to shove, Boris Johnson will admit that uh, he's going to have to uh, have a much closer uh, trading relationship with the EU than he has previously declared. Uh, and that that will take a longer time uh, and we may see his pledge on no extension to the transition uh, dying in the ditch uh, like his other pledges. Um, we'll have to wait and see. But, uh, you know, the, the view here is that, you know, a lot of what Boris Johnson says is just said in the moment to get the agreement over the line, to get the election out of the way with the Tory majority. And then after that, people may see a very different set of cards being played by the UK. Well, one of the things that might be a complicating factor, Tony, in your view and the view of many others is fish. Tell us why and, and in what way. Yeah, I mean, and this is this gets back to your question about how quickly Britain will be faced with the dilemma of getting a an extension to the transition, uh, which they will have to decide in July. So fisheries, of course, is a highly emotional, uh, very toxic political issue for both sides um, because for the UK it is the one big obvious area where they can take back control with Brexit and that's why Leave voting constituencies uh, were uh, all in the uh, sorry fishing communities were all heavily voting Leave in the referendum and UKIP uh, launched an organization called Fishing for Leave which basically said that the moment we're out of the EU Britain will be out of the common fisheries policy that means they will uh, they will automatically own all of the fish stocks in British waters, uh, what's called the 200-mile exclusive economic zone that uh, all countries operate and have operated since the mid-1970s. Uh, and on paper, yes, uh, that's true. If Britain's out of the common fisheries policy, they can own all of the uh, stocks in their waters. Now, they share those waters, as we know, uh, and which is something that is politically very uh, controversial. They share those waters with European vessels and Irish vessels, um, and it has been long. It has long been a bone of real painful contention among British fishermen that they get a raw deal that uh, European vessels get something like 58% of the stocks 
in UK waters, whereas the UK only gets between 10 and 15% of the fish stocks in European waters. Now, that just to make this very simple for people, uh, fish stocks are migratory. They straddle uh, national boundaries. They don't recognize political boundaries. So a fish stock might spawn in one country's economic zone, exclusive economic zone, but then mature in another uh, zone. You've got, you've got stocks like uh, mackerel, for example, which set out from uh, the Arctic Circle, uh, Norway. They migrate south past Western Scotland, uh, past the west of Ireland, down into the Bay of Biscay where they spawn. Uh, but the point at which you want to catch the mackerel is when they're off the west coast of Scotland because that's when they're at their oiliest, oiliest and most valuable. So that's why the most valuable fish for Irish fishermen is mackerel. But we rely on UK waters to get that mackerel. So what happens then once you leave the EU? Uh, then yes, technically Britain can say all those uh, stocks are ours. But uh, of course, if they do that, then they'll be they'll be locked out of the UK, of the EU market because they'll have to they have to sell uh, all those fish and fish products and shellfish into the European market because of the whole question about keeping stuff fresh. You can't be necessarily selling it all the way around the world. They wouldn't necessarily have immediate markets to sell their fish. But critically, uh, and much more importantly, and this is something that people will get, will cotton onto very quickly, is that there is an explicit link in the way the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration were constructed between EU uh, fishing vessels still accessing British waters and the free trade agreement itself. So in other words, unless the EU is happy that they're going to get as close to the status quo as possible uh, in a lot making sure Irish and European fishing vessels still get access to those UK waters uh, unless that happens and is guaranteed then uh, the free trade agreement uh, negotiations will start to slow down uh, and you will get uh, an almighty fight over this now uh, the way things were structured as well is that the, the political declaration commits both sides to having an agreement on fisheries by the 1st of July next year. Uh, most people think that that's really way too ambitious. It's not going to be enough time. So for that reason as well, uh, if, if they don't get an agreement done, then Britain is going to have to uh, decide uh, if and, and when they want, if they want an extension to the transition and how quickly, um, that, how long that extension period should be. Uh, but of course, you're going to have howls of betrayal by both sides over this issue because uh, to Brexiteers, it did seem like a clear win for the UK. They'd be out of the common fisheries policy. They would have this, what was called a sea of opportunities for fisheries. They could expand the fishing industry from 2 billion a year to 8 billion. There could be 100,000 people working in the catch sector and in the processing sector because they would get all their hands on all the fish stocks in UK waters. But as we see now, um, that is not going to be the case and the, UK and the EU is going to be very determined to make sure that the access that they have at the moment and that the access that Irish boats have at the moment, um, which is something like 30% of our, of our stocks come from UK waters, that that access continues. If not, the trade talks are not getting anywhere. Okay, just a no, some just some more quick business before we conclude. The, the nomination of a commissioner, Tony, the nomination of, of a UK commissioner, uh, that's a bump in the road here, potentially. Tell us about what it is and, and what the bump might be. 
Yeah, so uh, when Britain got the extension beyond October the 31st to the end of January, uh, the condition of that was that they had to appoint a, or nominate rather, a, a UK commissioner because they would still be a member state. The new commission is getting underway. Ursula von der Leyen is hoping to inaugurate the new commission on the 1st of December, a month late, but there have been problems in the hearings. Um, and it was a clear request from the EU when they did offer the, the extension to, to January 31st that they nominate a commissioner. Now, this week, uh, so Ursula von der Leyen wrote twice to Boris Johnson. Uh, she got one reply, not from Boris Johnson, but from Tim Barrow, who's the uh, British ambassador to the EU, saying because of the PERDA rules during the election, sorry, but we can't nominate a uh, commissioner. So rather than say, well, OK, fair enough, there's an election underway, the European Commission has immediately launched an infringement proceeding uh, against the UK for not nominating a commissioner. So in other words, they've taken legal action against the UK. Now, people will say, well, is that not a bit uh, heavy handed and a bit sort of pointless because they're leaving at the end of January anyway? Uh, the reason they're doing that is because um, there could be a legal challenge if the European Commission is not properly constituted uh, on the 1st of December. So I think the European Commission is taking that legal action to, to show that they are following the letter of the law. They're crossing all the T's and dotting the I's and making sure there isn't some nasty legal challenge in the new year. Sport, not normally something we, we discuss on this podcast, but it did rear its head on social media. As Stephen Barclay, the Brexit secretary, posted a video online looking at the issue of football and how it would be better after Brexit. Let's hear from him. People don't always put football and our new Brexit deal uh, together, um, unless it's Gary Lineker going on about Remain again. Um, but one of the things about taking control of our immigration is we can decide, do we want more English qualified players uh, in the Premier League, which is something the FA uh, are keen to see, or do we want to have more talented players from Brazil, uh, Africa, Argentina and elsewhere in the world, as the Premier League uh, are keen to see. So we'll actually have much more say as to where we uh, recruit players from, do it on talent, rather than it being because they're in Europe as opposed to the rest of the world. Uh, and as a result, we can look at having more English qualified players for the England team, but also look at uh, the best players from Brazil, Argentina, Africa and elsewhere uh, and ensure we're getting the best players into the Premier League. Sean, Stephen Barkley there is saying things would be better for the Premier uh, division because more South American and African players could be brought into playing it and better for the lower divisions because there could be more English qualifying players. There's been quite a deal of reaction to what he's had to say. Let's look at what he said first and whether he's right and what the background to it is. Well, what he's saying is that EU, or what we think he's saying is that uh, EU uh, rules and regulations mean that uh, English football is filled up with lots of Spanish and Italian uh, and German people and that they're keeping uh, English people out of a job and they're also keeping lower priced uh, South Americans and Africans out of a job in the Premier League and he's claiming that the Premier League wants more uh, players from Africa and uh, Latin America into their league. Um, the reaction to that uh, by football fans here in uh, Britain has been uh, pretty scathing, particularly those football fans who know a thing or two uh, about EU laws uh, and regulations. And uh, they think he's talking rubbish because the EU doesn't 
actually impose any regulations on uh, limitations on players uh, coming into leagues or what uh, type of limitations that leagues have, apart from the fact that we know from the, the Bosman ruling back in the 90s uh, that you're not supposed to limit the amount of EU people or treat them differently uh, in terms of professional sport uh, as you would uh, a national within your own league, uh, but in terms of the number of uh, Argentinian players or Brazilian players or indeed African players coming into the league, uh, that's nothing to do with the EU. Uh, that's British immigration rules, uh, but the EU law uh, makes it quite easy for them to come in. Uh, British law makes it easy for uh, Brazilian and Argentinian players to come into the English teams uh, and uh, get jobs. Uh, so, uh, having more of, of uh, people from South America uh, wouldn't necessarily be a problem uh, even now. Also with Africa, there's another uh, uh, ruling uh, from the European Court of uh, Justice called the Colpac ruling uh, involving a professional handball player that came from about the year 2000 or 2003, uh, but it allowed people from as countries that have association agreements with the European Union uh, to have the same sort of uh, workers' rights and free movement uh, rights uh, and bans on limitations uh, for people from association countries. In those days, uh, it was Slovenia, a Slovenian handball player, but it extends also to the ACP countries. That's Africa, Caribbean, uh, and Pacific countries. So uh, African players getting into uh, European Union teams and uh, also British teams, uh, not a problem. Again, it's down to uh, immigration law in individual states, but uh, really there's no uh, restrictions on them coming in as far as we can see, uh, and which is why uh, English cricket, for example, has been able to load up on South African players treat them like English people uh, for the purposes of employment law here. Uh, same with rugby uh, union and rugby league teams. They've been able to get lots of people from the Pacific Islands. Um, you think of names like Tuolagi, etc. Uh, and also from South Africa, um, Saracens uh, has uh, done extremely well in European and domestic competition uh, with a lot of South African muscle behind it. We'd even got an example of a, a, it going in the opposite direction uh, in Leinster a couple of years ago when Issa Nasewa went down to uh, the opening game uh, in South Africa uh, when South African teams were brought into the Pro 14 only to find that he wasn't able to go into South Africa because he needed a visa as a New Zealander, whereas South Africans coming up to uh, Europe to play rugby didn't need visas. So uh, you can see this, this whole area of sports and regulations, not as simple as it looks. And uh, I don't think Mr. Bartley has, has uh, covered himself in glory on this one. OK, a bit of an old goal there. So that's thanks for that fact check. And a fact check on myself from last week, actually. I think I referred to the Labour grandee Ian Austin potentially as Sir Ian Austin. Somebody kindly pointed out that he uh, he hadn't made the honours list, uh, although he may do for his support of Boris Johnson if Boris Johnson wins the election. So I, I stand corrected on that one. OK, well, that's it for another edition of Brexit Republic for this week from me, Colm O'Mungain, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, RT's Correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks, as always, for listening.